The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome, everybody. You're watching Squawk Box with Juliana and myself, Jeff Cutmore. The U.S. orders the temporary closure of its embassy in Kiev with Secretary of State Antony Blinken citing a dramatic acceleration in the build-up of Russian forces around Ukraine. Chancellor Olaf Scholz prepares to meet with Russian President Vladimir Putin later today with the German leader set to call for de-escalation. For the Bundesregierung, the German government, it's clear that further military aggression against Ukraine have serious political, economic and geostrategic consequences for Russia. And I'll underline this in Moscow tomorrow. U.S. markets closed lower after another volatile session and the 10-year Treasury yield briefly tops 2% as investors grapple with geopolitical tensions. That says the Fed's James Bullard tells CNBC the central bank has to get it right on rates. Our credibility is on the line here and we do have to react to data. However, I think we can do it in a way that's uh, organized and not disruptive to markets. And crude prices slip after touching seven-year highs amid heightened risk around a Russian invasion of Ukraine. But BP CEO Bernard Looney tells CNBC his company remains committed to Russia. There is no impact on our ongoing operations in Russia. Um, and we are sticking with the business of business. The U.S. is closing its embassy in Kiev and relocating staff to the western city of Lviv amid what the White House is describing as a, quote, dramatic acceleration in the buildup of Russian troops on Ukraine's border. The U.S. has already ordered most embassy staff to leave and American citizens have also been told to depart Ukraine immediately. It comes as U.S. and Western intelligence warns that Moscow could launch an attack at any moment. Well, the Russian Foreign Minister, Sergei Lavrov, urged Russian President Vladimir Putin to step up diplomatic efforts as Moscow seeks security and defence guarantees from NATO and the West. In a televised conversation between the two, Lavrov said the best policy was to continue talking. The readiness for listening to counter-arguments, our possibilities aren't exhausted. Of course, they shouldn't continue endlessly, but at this stage I would propose to continue and increase them. Ukrainian officials were forced to walk back comments from President Zelensky, who briefly pushed markets lower by calling for a day of unity on Wednesday, the day he had heard that Russia would invade. Zelensky's spokesman later said he was referring only to media reporting with, quote, irony and sarcasm. We are told that February 16th will be the day of the invasion. We'll make it a day of national unity. The relevant decree has been signed. We will put out national flags, put on yellow-blue ribbons, and we'll show our unity to the entire world. Now, the United States and the United Kingdom insist there is still the chance of a diplomatic solution to the crisis on Ukraine's border, where Russia has massed those uh, 100,000-some troops. 
President Joe Biden and Prime Minister Boris Johnson held a 40-minute phone call yesterday with the PM's office saying the leaders agreed that the crisis has reached a, quote, crucial window for diplomacy and that any military action by Moscow would result in far-reaching consequences. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz is traveling to Moscow for talks with Vladimir Putin today. It comes as Germany looks to step up its diplomatic role in the crisis following concerns from allies over Berlin's more muted response so far. Aneta joins us now with more. Aneta, what might um, stepping up diplomatic efforts actually look like from Olaf Scholz? And could he tell Vladimir Putin anything today that he hasn't heard before? Probably not. I think he will reiterate his stance that there needs to be a de-escalation of the crisis. And perhaps he is bringing some minor um, negotiations points to that table. But Olaf Scholz's strategy is very much to keep everything behind closed doors. That's like the controversy uh, or the opposite strategy to the United States, it looks like at least. So uh, what we don't know is um, what they are talking about in details. Of course, it will be just the two men for a couple of hours. It's not a short meeting. It's also the first time Olaf Scholz is going to meet Vladimir Putin in person as the new chancellor of Germany. And of course, they they just need to get to know each other a a lot better. Um, Angela Merkel did have a close relationship with Vladimir Putin, not a great one, but they knew each other very well. So it would have been much easier if she was still the chancellor of Germany. Uh, Reportedly, Olaf Scholz has been talking with Angela Merkel as well, and she has debriefed him um, about the potential motivation and how to deal best with Vladimir Putin. But yesterday he also was in Kiev, and he again reassured the Ukraine that Germany will jointly act together with its ally to protect the sovereignty of the Ukrainian nation. Perhaps we listen in of what he said in Kiev. Russia's military activities on the Ukrainian border are incomprehensible for us. There are no sensible reasons for such a military deployment. These activities, as well as the question of how to deal with Russia's demands of security guarantees, were the main topics of our talks today. I make clear here in Kiev once again, the sovereignty and territorial safety of Ukraine is non-negotiable for Germany. We expect Russia to take clear steps to de-escalate the current tensions. As you were saying, um, Olaf Scholz was criticized also domestically for being just um, yeah, not present at all in public. He has apparently done a lot of diplomatic, eff- diplomatic efforts, but behind closed doors. But now he's stepping up his role also in public with, uh, of course, he started off that diplomatic um, appearance with uh, meeting U.S. President Biden, but now Kiev and today Putin. And then we have a meeting also in Brussels. And of course, the whole week is culminating then in Munich at the uh, Security Conference conference where, of course, Russia and Ukrainian um, issue will be very high on top of the agenda uh, among people present in Munich. So what we can expect from today is, um, again, as I was saying, that um, Olaf Scholz will make it pretty clear to Vladimir Putin that in case uh, Putin uh, will invade Ukraine, um, that the sanctions will be very harsh. He will probably not tell them what kind of sanctions the EU and the US are discussing because that's his strategy as well. He does not want the Russians to know what could um, be their response, but he wants them to know that the sanctions will be tough and very harsh.
Mm. Annette, thank you for the breakdown. It is difficult to see a diplomatic way forward without one side or the other uh, shifting on on the potential for Ukraine to join NATO eventually. Um, we'll, of course, continue the coverage throughout the morning. Thanks for setting the scene, Annette. Um, I want to also highlight the latest in central bank speak. St. Louis Fed President James Bullard made his case for a rapid tightening of Fed policy. Speaking to our U.S. colleagues, Bullard told CNBC the Federal Reserve needs to act fast. I do think we need to front load more of uh, our planned uh, removal of accommodation than we would have previously. We've been surprised to the upside on inflation. This is a lot of inflation in the U.S. economy, 7.5 percent on the headline CPI. These are numbers that Alan Greenspan never saw. Uh, They haven't occurred in 40 years. So uh, our credibility is on the line here. Jim Bullard there, one of the most vocal uh, uh, speakers then on behalf of this idea of, of front-loading, of going with the shock and awe, uh, 50 basis points, just to send the market a very clear signal about the Fed's intolerance of the current inflation trends. Uh, but he's not the only voice out there, is he? And yesterday we talked a lot about Mary Daly and some of the other speakers. So uh, for the avoidance of doubt... The speakers at the moment are still creating doubt in the market about what is likely in that March meeting. Add to that the rather dark image of uh, the Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov uh, speaking to President Putin. Um, Of course, they do not conduct regular conversations in public in front of television cameras. So there was an element of theatre all about that meeting. But again, it was designed to crank up further pressure on Western leaders for security guarantees for Moscow. All of this really not helping uh, the sentiment in US markets yesterday. And um, I will point out that we had the Nasdaq up 1% at one stage during the market session, but ultimately, as we headed towards the close for the trading day, we saw those losses basically firmed up across the Dow and the S&P. Let's let's roll the wall. Let's have a look at the... uh, Um, treasuries. Um, If I could just show you how we are doing in terms of the uh, Treasury notes. And the important thing, I think, is that the market listened hard to Jim Bullard and it was inclined, I think, to sell Treasuries on the back of that. And as you look at the flatness now between the 5 and the 10, 1 spot 9, 1 spot 9, 7 there, you can see how uh, the commentary from Jim Bullard just reinforcing this idea that maybe uh, the Fed is going to be more aggressive in March as it continues to look at uh, these uh, recent inflation moves. So what about the safe havens? Is there any uh, clear trend into uh, some of these trades that offer some security? Well, there was a little bit of a bid back in the dollar here, so it's just worth pointing that out to you, even as we look at the quotes this morning and see the dollar a little easier. And gold uh, finally seemed to get some momentum here. Um, and again, it's been interesting that gold has not been a terrific opportunity over the last 12 months or so, but it does seem to have found some support in recent trading sessions on the back of concerns over economic and military war fair uh, between Ukraine and Russia if that is where ultimately we are going. Let's have a look at the Asian session then. The Asian markets, uh, again, we've got a weak 
trading day in Hong Kong. We had some fresh uh, COVID uh, news yesterday on the number of cases and they continue to spike there, causing concern for the uh, leadership of Hong Kong, but more importantly, causing concern in Beijing. The Shanghai Composite up uh, two-tenths of one percent here. We just got a, a confirmation of key lending rates being maintained in China by the PBOC and that offered a little bit of support here. Uh, Korea is down over one percent. Um, Europe, the, uh, the session yesterday was interesting. We, we kind of um, accelerated the losses into the close, as you can see, with the Zetradax down 2%, the CAC finishing the session down to a, a, and a quarter of 1%. And one of the challenges, I think, at the moment for the European uh, markets in particular is um, just where the drivers are in corporate earnings and the support ultimately from companies reporting right now. Uh, we've got a little bit more news on that front today and we'll tell you about those businesses and we've got some interesting C-suite interviews coming up for you. But some concerns I think that in some sectors the numbers haven't been as strong and supportive as you might have hoped for the quarter which raises some concerns obviously about what we see early doors 2022. Juliana. Jeff, uh, it's also been interesting. Even the companies that have delivered better than expected numbers, their share prices haven't necessarily been rewarded. And we've seen this negative skew in price action in response to earnings throughout the reporting season. So definitely look forward to those conversations we've got coming up on the show. But now um, turning to energy markets, oil is trading lower after hitting fresh seven-year highs on Monday, fueled by fears of a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Now, Hadley has been speaking to energy decision makers at Egypt's and Cairo, with some, some now expecting prices to top $100 per barrel soon. Let's get out to Hadley, who joins us now in Cairo. Hadley, I got a little sneak preview of one of your panels earlier this morning, and the discussions around the implications of $100 plus a bar per barrel price of oil were really fascinating. Absolutely, Julian. I mean, they used words like fear and scary talking about oil topping 100. And now we have analysts coming out and saying essentially that we could see oil to get to 120 to potentially even $150 a barrel. Listen in, though, to what the energy ministers had to tell me yesterday. I did a quick round robin. Listen in. I can see it happening, but uh, I don't want it to happen. But it is on the way, definitely. But uh, yeah, what can I say? I don't want it to happen, but it is looking like going to 100. What is happening to the market is, is a, a geopolitical tension, and that's what's driving uh, primarily the prices. We, uh, we will, so it's very difficult to predict when it comes to geopolitics what is going to be, uh, to be the price range. Uh, what I can comment always on is the fundamentals of the market so today i think we are outside the fundamentals and it's 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 that geopolitics that is that is taking us to this height oil and natural gas makes a relationship and collaboration between countries and that's something that we need to keep on doing it's very good for the region um and i think that by collaborating together and having and all the energy sources for everybody, we will win the, the case.
We have the tendency, particularly uh, in the last few months, of uh, subsidising, basically, which is not the norm. So uh, we're in that difficult position where when you start doing that, it's very difficult to stop it. The prices are going up because of the factors uh, uh, you know, that are not necessarily intrinsically linked to, uh, to production and to the cost. Um, however, it, it is something that is going to continue, and at least for the uh, foreseeable future. And I will agree uh, with Karine that we definitely need to uh, stick to our targets in terms of the energy transition. The UAE oil minister there, Suhail Mazrui, essentially saying that what we're seeing in the oil prices is a direct reflection of the geopolitics, which you really get a sense from those ministers um, of where this conversation had headed. They're talking about fear. They're talking about oil over 100 being very scary for the markets, scary for them. We were talking essentially about what that could mean in terms of the economic fallout. But I asked Suhail Mazrui what this means actually for OPEC Plus and if the organization has a plan if Russia invades Ukraine. And he essentially said, listen, we have not had any indication so far that that that's actually going to happen, which is rather comforting. That's a direct quote. Now, I also had the chance to sit on a panel of CEOs. I asked the CEO of Apache directly about what's happening in the United States. Just last week, we heard from U.S. President Joe Biden saying he's going to work like the devil to bring down gas prices. But there's a lot of questions um, back at home, essentially, about whether or not the president understands how to do that. Listen in to what the CEO of Apache had to say when I asked him, have you heard directly from the White House? Shale is not something you just flip a switch and bring more production on. Um, so, you know, I think we're doing what we can. We're investing at an appropriate level. And, uh, you know, I've got another rig coming in the U.S., but it won't be there till summer. Mm-hmm. So it, things are pretty tight. Do you think that this demonstrates a lack of understanding on the part of the administration? I don't know that it's a lack of understanding. I just think sometimes you underestimate situations and don't have the ability to kind of forecast where we could find ourselves. So in conversations on and off the stage, I was actually asking John Christensen about that. I said, have you heard directly from the White House? You know, we hear from the administration that they're reaching out to the oil and gas sector in the United States, not just about higher oil prices, but also about the overall market dynamics. He said, not really. Juliana? Hadley, really interesting to hear directly from those those uh, leaders uh, on their conversations with the White House or lack thereof, it sounds like. Um, Hadley, thank you for your coverage. I, I want to also flag to viewers that you can head to CNBC.com for more on Hadley's panels and interviews from Egypt, including BP CEO Bernard Looney saying mounting political tensions, geopolitical tensions have so far had limited impact on its businesses. Coming up on the show, Dutch recruitment firm Randstad posts a near 30% rise in quarterly core earnings. We'll speak with CEO Jacques Vandenbroek next. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. 
Welcome back, everybody. Well, the shorthand um, for the last 24 hours is basically equity markets lower, bond yields higher, and uh, crude continuing to make gains. But let's show you some boards. I uh, just want to give you a fuller picture of how we traded. The Nasdaq was fascinating through the session, given that we were up 1% at one point, And we basically ended the session, what, off uh, about a point, effectively. Um, the S&P 500 uh, down nearly uh, four-tenths of 1% here, with the Dow Jones Industrial Average shedding 170 points. When you look at the European losses, these actually don't look too bad. The dollar crosses, let's just show you where we are on the green back. Obviously, some risk aversion cash has found its way into the dollar through the last few trading sessions here. But we have a little bit of a fight back with sterling dollar 135.29 and euro dollar one spot 1316. Uh, in terms of some of the uh, commodity trades, let's just show you that oil story if we can flip the boards and uh, give you a full picture of just how well we've eased a little bit off these uh, recent highs here but as you can see we're still uh, within shooting range of that hundred dollar a barrel level that um, some of Hadley's panelists were concerned about and spot gold getting a little bit of support here as you can see uh, up nearly five tenths of one percent right now we've just had some numbers through from recruitment company Randstad. the group has reported a 27 percent jump in fourth quarter core earnings at 335 million euros the move supported by tight labor markets and strong growth in europe north america didn't do too badly either to be honest jack vandenbroek joins us, the CEO of Randstad. And, and Jack, nice to have you back with us. As I, as I look at the geographical bra breakdown, actually, most regions you operate in seem to have given at least 10% plus growth. Yeah, at least. Absolutely. Good morning. And uh, not just uh, good growth, but also uh, market leading growth. So in the majority of our markets, uh, we perform above market and in many markets, well above market. So very happy with our results. Yeah. Inevitably, I guess you should do well as uh, regions and countries come out of these pandemic uh, lockdowns. But if you look into the crystal ball for us, how does the first half of the year and the full year look from February? Yeah, so I always say we have a six weeks visibility. So the full year is still far out for us, but uh, we started the year well. So volume development is in line uh, with uh, Q4. Uh, we grew 16% in the fourth quarter, 20% for the full year. Um, and uh, January seems is, is holding strong. Uh, so, uh, yeah, optimistic, at least, for where we are now. I just wanted to pick out a couple of points and just get your view. You mentioned in the release, gross margin for the first quarter is expected to be modestly lower sequentially. Also, higher expenses. Could you just address those two trends and, and tell me whether they're purely seasonal or whether you expect them to continue? Yeah, yeah. so the, the margin is a seasonal effect. Uh, Q4 is our highest margin, 20.4% uh, uh, margin. That, that's a high margin, uh, higher than, uh, than last year. Very happy with that. Goes modestly down, but still compared to last year, uh, first quarter, uh, it will be up. Uh, but... Um, yeah, cost will be modestly higher because of the fact that our uh, recruitment process outsourcing business, so where we handle the recruitment function for large, mostly um, multinational businesses, is really booming. We have an above 150% uh, 
uh, growth uh, in this business. It is already a world market leading business to begin with, but we have quite a few clients who are recruiting globally thousands of people. Uh, and then, of course, we have to put in extra people, but they come directly with revenue, so to speak. So very happy with that development. Um, you mentioned scarcity. Um, we saw this coming, of course, because the labor market, by and large, is a numbers game. And uh, that's why we are creating the biggest data set around uh, in our business. Last year, we had 188 million people uh, visiting our websites uh, looking for guidance and or jobs. And we're benefiting from that now. Jacques, what are the biggest challenges your clients are facing in acquiring new talent and retaining talent? And where in the world are these challenges most acute? Yeah, yeah. what we're actually seeing is that the first time ever, the scarcity will not be directly related to the economy. So historically, if the economy was up, it was tough to find people. Uh, and if the economy was down, it was easier. Now, because of the demographic and the, the, let's say job mismatches, uh, because of digitization and what have you, it's going to be structurally tight. Uh, I've said that the, that the traditional model of recruiting is going to be, uh, you know, changing. Just put out an ad, people will react, you make a choice. That's going to be tough. That's the biggest challenge. So we're advising our clients who really have a more holistic mid to long term view on what the best talent looks like. And then, uh, you know, we'll, uh, we're, we're there to help. Um, so... It's really also keeping your own workforce uh, up to speed, huh? changing your, old work, your own workforce also to the demands of the future. I think that's also a big challenge for, for our clients. And it's pretty broad-based, by the yeah. way. Back to your that's question, true. if it's more pronounced in one country or the other, it is, uh, it's pretty broad-based uh, across the globe, actually. Interesting um, about it being broad based, given what we're hearing from, you know, different um, central bankers and different industry leaders around um, scarcity of, of labor being um, potentially worse in, in parts of the world like the UK and the US. Um, looking at the US, we got some pretty massive and impactful revisions to the latest non-farm payrolls report. And I wonder how reliable the data is that we're getting on uh, labor markets around the world and if the data is in line with what you're seeing. Yeah, well, we don't look too much at data. I always say we manage the, the company on actuals. But let's talk about the U.S. and about, we see similar challenges. So in the U.S., you've got these really, really tense uh, uh, pockets of, of labor shortages huh? uh, in the tech areas, Austin and, and Silicon Valley. Uh, at the same time, you've got the rural areas where uh, the digital infrastructure is lacking and people are you know, still unemployed, don't have the capabilities uh, for the future. So I'm advocating in that sense for example, in the US, uh, to really make a, a, a plan, uh, an integrated plan to bring infrastructure and skilling uh, to uh, the available people. Uh, and, and they're still there. Uh, same goes for Europe. Uh, we will see in the coming years people with white collar repetitive jobs uh, losing their jobs due to AI. Uh, and they need to move to the sectors in demand, which is technology, tech in general, education, uh, healthcare, and anything related to e-commerce. We're going to be short of people, but there's still many people available. So, you know, and that's where we use our data to advise governments, employers on how to weather this challenge. And Jack, can I ask you, has uh, wage inflation moderated? Has it peaked or are expectations still very high? 
with the people you're working with that they will get higher salary settlements from here on in. Can you throw in some, some percentages as well, just to know what it looks like at the moment? Well, the first percentage is that we did a recent research and, and, and two thirds of people are considering a job change. So I think that is a, a, a signal for employers to really take care of their people. Uh, working from home in a way also lowers the threshold to change jobs. I think that's the first uh, signal. Uh, then wage inflation is, is most pronounced in the US. Um, yeah, probably anywhere from four to six percent, sometimes higher depending on, on the job type. It's more moderate in Europe. Europe is more governed by collective labor agreements, so we see less, less of it there. Um, and I don't think you need to compete on wages. You need to compete on different stuff, content of jobs, culture, uh, challenges, because yeah, at the end of the day, it's a bit of a dead-end street. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.